This is the Toasted Sister Podcast. I'm Andy Murphy. with me Brandon Francis. He's a Four Corners farmer and a research lab technician at the New Mexico State University Agricultural Science Center in Farmington, New Mexico. He's Navajo. Brandon William Francis in so, uh, Brandon, you work at a farm, is that right? Um, I work at the, an experiment station um, in Farmington. It's called the Agricultural Science Center. It's a research station, um, part of a land grant that New Mexico State University runs up, um, up by Nappy. Okay. And I saw on your Facebook today, you, you posted a, a notebook. You were writing in a notebook, and it seemed like it was full of lots and lots of numbers. Uh, so what, what are some of the things that you're doing? What are some of the numbers you're, you're writing down? Uh, that's part of a three-year study. Mm. Um, back in two th- August of 2015, during the Gold King Mine Spill, uh, the experiment station where I work at wanted to get involved in uh, helping people understand what was going on with the river and uh, acid mine release from the Gold King Mine. So it's a part of a long-term monitoring process. But being agriculturalists, we decided to concentrate on the irrigation ditches and the uh, agricultural fields all the way from Cedar Hill to Shiprock. So that that's part of um, part of the study is collecting plant samples and alfalfa samples and grass samples from various fields that we've selected. Okay, and uh, what sort of things are you looking for? I know uh, it was a bunch of heavy metals and those kinds of things that were released into those rivers uh, back in 2015, but are, are those reaching into the soil? They, they, they could reach into the soil, but in our initial study, we found that it was not in levels to be concerned with, that people can can still continue to do agriculture. The monitoring project is just to reassure them that is to see if the levels go up or down during the three-year period. So we're testing various plants, um, not only um, alfalfa and grass, but also um, uh, various cucurbits such as squash and corn and vegetables that people grow along the the river, from the Animus River all the way to the, where it meets the San Juan and into Shiprock. Okay, and let's go back a little bit. Can you kind of just explain uh, the Gold King Mine Spill? Uh, the Gold King Mine Spill goes back to the mining era of the 1800s, mm-hmm. and the, the San Juan Mountains are, in particular, the San, the San in the Silverton area are the result of a, of a caldera that collapsed. And that actually, like, exposed a lot of precious metals near the surface. The Plata Mountains were named the La Plata Mountains because when the Spanish first arrived in the region, the explorers, they noticed silver deposits everywhere just lying about. So that's what that's where the La Plata Mountains get their name from is La Plata means silver. So there was all these silver just, like, everywhere. So they 
they got to get all the low-hanging fruit. But when the Americans moved in, they were, I, like what, I like to call what they switched cheese the mountain and used water pressure to actually um, mine. So it actually exasperated a pre-existing condition due to the caldera of releasing all this acid mine drainage that was collected in what's called slime ponds or tailing ponds. And due to the 1874 mining law that these, the mining companies didn't have to remediate or clean up any of these um, mines that they, they dug into the mountain or anywhere in the area, uh, when the EPA's hired contractors went in, they actually um, breached one of these tailing ponds and released um, three to four million gallons of this heavy metal-laden water with copper, aluminum, cadmium, manganese, iron, lead, and um, a gallon is um, about the size of a basketball, so like four million basketballs put down to Animus. And it turned the river from the point source, it turned it orange, and by the time it reached uh, Durango, it was kind of turned in, into a yellow. But then no one, the EPA didn't tell anybody, and even further down the line, no one told New Mexico State and no one told the Navajo Nation that this was happening. It was the Southern Utes that had to warn the state of New Mexico and the Navajo Nation that this heavy metal-laden water was coming down. The heavy metal-laden water was traveling at 2.5 miles per hour, so you could walk it, walk it and follow it. So that's the speed it was traveling. Wow. And uh, so obviously lots of people, lots of uh, Navajo farmers in the area were concerned about uh, their their cattle, their um, irrigation to their f- crops and farms. Uh, but but what about now? Are people still concerned? Is, is farming and, and gardening back at the same pace as before? Of the Navajos who farm on the Navajo reservation, mm-hmm. about 70% of Navajos um, farm along the San Juan River Valley. And People who do farm, they actually der- derive their economic livelihood from it anywhere from 17 and up thousands of dollars. So when the Gold King Mine spill happened, a lot of these people decided not to farm, fearing that the, the river was contaminated and it would contaminate their soil. So they, so they decided against um, plowing and farming just to see what, what would happen. So... They're, they haven't farmed since, and if, if anyone's farming, that they're just—they're not doing anything uh, in the terms of produce. They're doing like alfalfa, but there's still a loss of consumer confidence all along the river. The whole valley, from the Animas all the way to the San Juan, is sitting on tons of unsold alfalfa. So the, their their consumer confidence has been lost, not only in the Navajo Reservation, but all along the river valley, the rivershed, the watershed. I'm sorry. Wow. So what, when do you think uh, maybe uh, things will go back to normal? Is that um, you know part of your job, taking all these samples? A lot of this has to do with um, just reassuring them mm. and telling them that the, the sampling and the, the research that we're doing and the tests that we're doing shows that the river is within the limits provided by the Environmental Protection Agency and, the, and that it's okay for agriculture, that... Um, during stormy events and flood events and during spring runoff is a time that they should not irrigate with the water that's coming off the river because of the turbidity of the water, which will stir up all these heavy metals from the river and push it further on and will eventually settle once the um, flow rate has decreased. 
And uh, in a in an article that uh, you were quoted in, you you said that uh, maybe you were experience, experimenting with uh, weeds, uh, like weeds like uh, sponging up those heavy metals from the soil. Is that what that is? Oh yeah, um, I noticed that um, all the projects that and all the research that was being done along the river. It was mostly um, uh, monitoring projects or monitoring research or monitoring tests. Everyone was just seeing the levels and setting up warning systems if the levels were um, reaching um, levels that were not adequate for agricultural use or even recreational use. So a mentor of mine, Dr. Larry Emerson, um, thought of this idea where we can um, offer remediation efforts at at the lowest amount of funds possible, like because the people that need these remediation efforts on the, are on the lower end of the economic spectrum, such as on the reservation and along the San Juan River Valley. Dr. Larry Emerson's idea was to use spider remediation ponds to filter out the water and in combination with bioswales and then using what we call weeds or plants. Weeds are just plants that are at the wrong place at the wrong time and uninvited. But I believe that all plants, just like all all things on this planet serve a purpose. Just we just have we just haven't found a, we just haven't found what they can do for us. So the remediation efforts will involve the phytoremediation ponds, the bioswales, and using plants that have plants such as weeds that have um, bio, um, heavy um, bioaccumulation of heavy metals to remediate the soil. Okay. Right now you're working, or at least in, in the article that I read uh, that had you quoted all over it uh, in the Durango Herald, uh, you're working with Native families, Navajo families in the area to help set up gardens. Is that what you're doing? As an employee of the experiment station at or the Agricultural Science Center, mm-hmm. the, its original mission statement was to help the Navajo agricultural product industry develop when it first started over 50 years ago. But then now... Um, Nappy is a huge billion-dollar industry, and we, we still work in tandem with them. But to help them develop um, is no longer our primary mission statement. The research station where I work at has moved on to a secondary secondary mission statement, which is to help people along the San Juan River Valley with their growing needs. And, and um, people on the reservation are included in that mission statement. So helping Navajo families grow um Anybody has any questions regarding agriculture, we, we invite them to call us and we'll answer their questions or offer any help in the best way we can. And one of my first projects was to build backyard gardens for people mm-hmm. uh, as a part of a Arizona and New Mexico State um, joint venture with the NET College was to see um, build 15 gardens in Arizona around the, the primary campus in Salee. And its secondary campus in Shiprock was to build 15 gardens uh, for people who never practiced agriculture before or have become um, uh, disconnected with it. And this was just to see we provide them with a 24 by 34 foot backyard garden complete with drip system and all the tools that they would need. And we we offered them um, suggestions of what they can grow. But after um, showing them how to do all this and um, giving them the best possible advice. We wanted to see, as part of a human study, to see its effect on their behavior regarding regarding exercise, uh, nutrition, and just to see how to basically um, change their behavior for the better, short of um, growing it for them. 
Okay. And and so far, have you seen any uh, any kind of changes? Well, um, there it, the people did run into um, uh, run into various problems. Mm-hmm. Some of which we could solve, and some of what, some of which we couldn't. A lot of it had to do with access to um, to, to water. Going back to the Gold King Mine spill, people were um, very hesitant about using their water, even if it came from a new municipal source. Mm. And even the cost was um, sometimes very high of running water from their house. And some of the people that didn't have access to water living out in a rural area and away from the river. So we had to set up um, um, gravity-fed rain, gravity-fed barrels, like where they would fill their a 55-gallon drum, and uh, they'll be they'll be gravity-fed to their drip line. And most of the people that um, grew, they had we had a 60 66% success rate. And some people were so successful that they had more than they uh, that than their family needed, and they were asking for um, marketing advice of how they could take their produce to market. So uh, it was pretty successful. So can you explain the area that you're in? Um, it's it's very deserty, uh, of course. Like you like you kind of mentioned, uh, there's not that much uh, water to go around, or uh, you know you're having to haul water to different places. Um, but what is it like uh, growing a garden in that deserty four corners area? Growing in the high desert, like my boss Dr. Kevin Lombard always says, if you can grow. In the, in the San, along the San Juan River area, he said that you can basically grow anywhere in the world. And that's just a way of describing its difficulty level. Like, if you can grow here, it's it'll be easy anywhere else. But um, one thing the people living in the San Juan River Valley had working in their advantage was the high alkalinity of their soil, which um, out of all the tests we did when during the Gold King Mine, that the people all the way in Shiprock, despite... Um, the late warning they got from the state of Colorado that they had the least amount of um, heavy metal accumulation in their soil. But it, it, it's all about um, knowing your soil type and knowing what will grow and what can't grow and just learning by trial and error. And, and Navajos, have, Navajos and people along the San River Valley have been growing for thousands of years. So mm-hmm. I would say... Uh, the difficulty level, it was just um, being having a lot of tenacity, mm. to, and that's the key to success. Right, right. And, and uh, you know, sometimes when I think of uh, uh, this movement to create a backyard garden and to, you know, grow your own food, I'm like, gosh, you know, try, you know telling, telling us Navajos to do that out in the middle of the desert is pretty challenging. <laughs> it's a big challenge because, um, you know, I live in Crown Point. Or I uh, used to live in Crown Point. Now I live here in Albuquerque. But um, uh, we've tried to grow a couple of th- different things um, for years years and uh, my mom just revived um, her backyard garden and she's growing a couple of different things and yes uh, last year we got a couple of squash um, but this was after trial and error we we uh, you know uh, tilt um, dug up the ground tilled the ground um, put in some fertilizer bought some fertilizer and this is like every year trying different things and um, you know it's 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 always pretty pretty 
um, awesome to see uh, some Navajos out there. It's like they're growing corn and stuff just out of the dirt, out of the sandy soil. And, you know, I, I just wonder like what their secrets are. And now we're starting to try to pay attention to the soil. Um, have, have you done any kind of testing in the Crown Point area? We've done um, saturated paste study or um, testing for the um, Navajo Technical University down in Crown Point. Mm -hmm. And that, that's where the Chacoan culture was in that area. And they practice agriculture in that area. Mm -hmm. But regarding studies, we did have a, a community garden that was at the old Boys and Girls Club right there, right by the high school. Oh, yeah. And they yeah. were pretty successful. Okay. Have you been in uh, farming and growing all your life? Um, coming from Black Mesa, we, where we practice dry, dry land farming, for as long as I can remember, um, I've helped plant corn, beans, squash, watermelons, and having apricots in our backyard. So, yeah, as long as I can remember. Okay, and how how did you decide to uh, go into uh, NMSU's agriculture uh, science sciences? There, I mean, it seems like almost a natural uh, a natural field to go into. When I was um, at school over in Fort Lewis, I was studying um, what was the beginning of the sustainable agriculture program. They were starting to develop it, and they had a few classes and. The other ag program that Fort Lewis had, back in the 50s, Fort Lewis used to be an agricultural school, but it totally died off, like in the, I think believe in the 80s. And I was writing my, my senior thesis, and I realized that um, writing something like that is kind of like writing your job resume. I, I wrote it on the history of the San Juan River Valley, how Navajos came in contact with um, agriculture. Uh, during this event back in the 12th and 1300s called the Great Contraction, which was like a 70-year drought during the period that the ancient Pueblians or the Anasazis were, were about when they disappeared during that time, during the 70-year drought. And the Navajos came in and filled, and filled that, that void left by the ancient Pueblian people. And I wrote it based on a dendrochronological and galochronological record and also based on Spanish and French documents, noting how Navajos practiced agriculture, how they adapted it to, the, to our needs, and when they came in contact with us, how, how industrious we were. And as I was writing this, a teacher, Dr. Kathleen Hillemeyer, um, noticed that I had a wealth of knowledge coming back from growing up about seed saving and about companionate planting. And at this time, Dr. Kevin Lombard, my boss right now, was looking for someone to conduct workshops as a part of the Diego gardening program related to seed saving and companion planting and just basic farming and gardening stuff from a Navajo cultural perspective and something I wrote my senior thesis on. So even before I finished, uh, I was working there part-time. So then afterwards, uh, I, got, I got assigned the Backyard Garden Project and then then the Gold King Mine thing happened, and and that was like almost three years ago now. Wow. Uh, so over uh, all this time, how has your uh, ideas about food and uh, Navajo food and maybe even Navajo uh, agriculture, how has that uh, evolved or changed? I always felt that um, planting and agriculture, we picked this up 
and we adapted it to our own needs. And we even have like varieties of corn, squash, pumpkins that are that we that we adapted to this area, and that's now part of our culture. And which are in these plants and these varieties of of seeds are not only our past, but I feel that if we protect them, they're they're also our future. That they're that they're our link to the future, and they'll be our legacy. All right. And um, uh, in an article, you said uh, something like, um, uh, I thought I was poor, uh, like raising sheep and helping out in the cornfield. Um, and then you go on to say, uh, I go to school and I found I, I found out I have this uh, wealth of knowledge that I, I can share with people. Um, why, why is raising sheep and living off the land always compared to being poor? Um, like, uh, you know, even when I was, um, in school and growing up in Crown Point, you know, people make fun of other people for raising sheep. They think it's, you know, cheap. They think it's like, you know, poor, like, like maybe you're almost less than, I mean, it has kind of this bad rap. Uh, why do you, why do you think that is? Or do you even see that? Well, why I said that in the article was basically because um, I wasn't given the other things that I noticed other kids had, and my time wasn't devoted to things that other kids did. Mm. Like, I had chores and I had things to do, and I didn't have, like, the nice things that they did, but I guess they were trying to teach me that my parents and my grandparents and my family were teaching me that hard work and being industrious and knowing how to do things uh, unbeknownst to me would be more valuable someday and and that things like that are only temporary and what they were trying to teach me was they were trying to instill me with a sense of um with with values that um have got me to where I am today so I really appreciate what they taught me and I don't know why I thought that when I was younger but I'm glad that I was taught that. And, yeah, I I did have a feeling like riding the bus sometimes all the way, waking up at 5 in the morning and going to school and coming back when it was dark. And I did feel like I was um, different from everybody else. Mm -hmm. Uh, So um, I was... uh looking around your Facebook page again, and I saw that you have a few uh, Bigfoot references there. Uh, in your intro, you say you're something like uh, a Bigfoot at NMSU Ag, uh, a Sasquatch hire, and a, a Yeti in training. Um, of course, the, the former two were past occupations, but um, what, what's, what's that all about? Uh, it goes back to, like, um, my... Um... My family from Black Mesa, they take great pride in in being in living above what's called the oak line, mm-hmm. where the oak grows at 6,000 feet. It's just about being a person of the mountains and going back to being a giant from <laughs> from Black Mesa. Okay. All right. I thought you were, um, you know, like into Bigfoot, wanting to find the truth out there or something. Oh, yeah, yeah. I, I, I'm always interested in stuff like that because uh, there's a bunch of sightings in Wheatfields area and some on Black Mesa. So. Yes. And people, when they, when, they, when they have a Bigfoot sighting somewhere, they always ask me if I was in that area or something. <laughs> 
Oh, right, right. Uh, in, in Crown Point, they have the Crown Point Howler, and um, that was featured on um, that show, Navajo Cops. I think that was on National Geographic, but um, they had a film crew there, and they were talking about the Howler, and um, all my family has heard it except me because um, it started howling and making all kinds of noise. Um, maybe when I was a sophomore in high school, in uh, college at uh, NMSU in Las Cruces, and that's when it started doing all that stuff. And every now and then my grandma would call me and she's like, oh, guess what? I heard the howler last night. It woke me up and all the dogs were barking and, and we were all scared. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, you know, it started with my grandma. She's so obsessed with it because she lives like right on the edge of Crown Point. Um, the one last uh, neighborhood and then, you know, it's kind of mesas and wilderness. So she gets to hear you know, kind of firsthand the the howler. And so all my family's heard it. We always have howler stories when we uh, come and visit, but I still haven't heard it. So um, <laughs> yeah. have, have you seen anything? Um, not related to the the howler, mm. even though I tease my friends from Crown Point that, that it, that's them doing that. <laughs> um, my family has members from like um, the Chiska Mountains, Tushke Mountains, Mm. They've all claimed they've seen Bigfoot in that area, and on Black Mesa, there's been like sightings. Um, but I, I have never personally seen anything like that yeah. related to Bigfoot. Yeah. Um, I do. I do remember hearing a lot about giants that used to live on these areas a long time ago. Yeah. That used to eat people. Wha- but other than that, but one time my sister did say that. There was a train wreck near Gallup of all these um, back back in the day of all these like um, circus animals, yeah. and that's her theory about what the howler is. That's one of those creatures that escaped from that train wreck. <laughs> I like that story too. I would believe that story too. <laughs> all right. Well, is there uh, anything else you'd like to talk about? I'm interested in developing um, what they call three sister varieties of um, fruits and ve- or vegetables to grow at high elevation. Oh, okay. Uh, that's another one of my projects. And I am going to Washington to advocate for the 2018 Farm Bill next week. Okay, cool. Well, um, you mentioned a while ago that anybody can call you for, um, uh, like, gardening, farming questions. Uh, what, what's that number? Yeah, and if anybody maybe... has any questions regarding... Um, farming along the San Juan River Valley or on the Navajo Reservation or in the Southwest, um, I always tell them that I'll answer to the best of my knowledge. And the number one thing you can do about growing is, just like with any profession, uh, don't pretend to know something you don't. And and if I don't know it, I'll point them. I know a lot of professionals and experts in the area that I can point them to for the right answer. Oh, right. And what can people Google? Um, do they Google, like, New Mexico State University Ag Science Center? Yeah, or? the Mexico State University uh, Agricultural Science Center. And if you look on the website, you'll see me there um, with the X-ray fluorescence spectrometer testing the soil in the vineyard up there. So that's how you'll know you're on the right page. This is the 11th episode of the Toasted Sister podcast. 
If you've been listening, please share these episodes with your friends and family, and please rate and review this podcast on iTunes. That would really help get the word out about Toasted Sister and Native American food. You can subscribe to the Toasted Sister podcast on SoundCloud, iTunes, Podcast Addict, and Stitcher. All this lovely music was created for Toasted Sister by C.W. Ione. You can check out his music by visiting his website, cwion.com. That's C-W-A-Y-O-N.com. I'm Andy Murphy, creator, host, and producer of Toasted Sister. Catch the next episode on Thursday, June 15th.